0: Welcome to the Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams, and I'm Kirk McElhern. We self-produce the Next Track podcast and want to keep it ad-free, so we rely on contributions from listeners for support. You can help us by making a regular donation via Patreon.
1: Visit patreon.com/slash The Next Track, and thanks. So we did something we don't often do. We both watched the same movie this week to talk about it.
0: Well, we never watch movies (laughs) to talk about it. So this is the first time that we've ever assigned ourselves a movie to watch and then talk about it, right?
1: Haven't we done that once before? I mean, we've talked about music movies. We've talked about Woodstock. We've talked about, I don't know, the Clash movie recently, but it wasn't a full episode. So anyway... There's this new documentary called Squaring the Circle. It's about a company called Hypnosis, H I P G N O S I S. They made album covers from 1967 to 1982. Some of the most iconic album covers of classic rock Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon, Animals, Wish You Were Here, Led Zeppelin, Houses of the Holy, and others. And you could go on through about 400 different covers, which all appeared in. Vinyl Album Cover Art, The Complete Hypnosis Catalog, released in 2017, published by Thames & Hudson.
0: That's also a book we both have.
1: Oh, I didn't know you had it. Yeah. So I had mentioned it as an extract pick, probably when it came out. And I find it fascinating. So we both have the book. We both saw the documentary. We both know the music. Yeah. It's like we're already, we're in we're in tune here. Let's go. Let's go. We're ready to go. So basically, this is the story of this company. And what prompted... Us to want to do this was Bob Lefsitz once again in his Lefsitz letter was talking about this and he was saying, You don't need to watch it, but it's like the Rosetta Stone of classic rock.
0: <laughs> okay, <laughs> okay,
1: yeah, yeah, that's, that's Lefsitz. But what's interesting is it's a period when album art mattered, when album covers mattered, when they were important. And we've talked about this many times when we talk about artwork that it went from the 12 inch LP down to the five-inch CD, and down to, who was it, the guy from Oasis?
0: Noel Gallagher was saying that his daughter didn't know what artwork was because, as he said, she grew up with a phone. So she was not aware. He had explained to her that he was late from a meeting because he was me- having a meeting about artwork, and she didn't know what that was. And he had to explain to her that y- you create artwork for your album, and she didn't even know what an album was, really. I mean, <laughs> uh, which is, you know, that makes sense to me. And absolutely, nowadays, except for marketing purposes, there's really not much purpose for a an album cover anymore, because there aren't albums anymore.
1: I would say that no matter what, well, there are albums, people release albums, whether they're physical or digital, it's still an album. I would say that the album cover is what's called a paratextual device. It adds information to the content of something, right? Or or purports to. Or purports to. I mean, if you see a blank white cover on an album, you're going to wonder what it is. And of course, the Beatles famously did that because they couldn't use the photo that they wanted of John and Yoko naked or whatever. If you see an album with just a cow on the cover, no band name, no title of the album, nothing, you're going to be perplexed. And actually... Our desire to understand things makes us want to know more when we see something like that. And the film is essentially a one-sided story of a two-man company. Aubrey Powell was one of the two, along with Storm Segerson. Sigerson? Sigerson? You know,
0: I could never have... I did not grasp his name, and I don't know it. I just know them as Poe and
1: Storm. Poe and Storm. Anyway, I'll find it later. Storm, Sagerson, something like that. So Pink Floyd said they want something really banal for the cover. How about... Ha, ha, ha. How about a photo of a cow? So they drove out to the country, took a photo of a cow, and came back, and that was the album cover. Of course, the record companies, how are we going to market that? But then the idea of why is there an album with a cow on the cover... I think David Gilmore said in the documentary, it became iconic, which is not what they wanted. They wanted something to be totally banal. They
0: ran into that problem a lot because there was no album cover industry. They invented it. So some of the things that they may have thought, as from a marketing point of view, that would work or wouldn't work, the actual opposite was true. And that's one case of that happening. It's really amazing how early on in the documentary, they do talk about getting a lot of flack from record companies. But then after a while, after they start having success, after a lot of the bands that they work with have enormous success, selling millions of records, the record companies kind of said, hey, there's something to this album cover art. And I think, you know, if if, if that helps sell a few more records, then let's hire them. And that's eventually what happened. They got they got really big because they just, well, you know, they really did what they felt like doing. That's kind of how I felt. Yeah. They really just yeah. said, here's a crazy idea. Let's do it. Everybody liked it. So they did it. I mean, that's yeah. kind of how this carefree <laughs> sort of That's how the stories in the the documentary go. You think you're going to hear some great ponderous,
1: some great creative thing. And that's not really how they worked. It sounds a bit Dadaist in a way that they just came up with crazy ideas, but they worked. Yeah. Because they were in a terrain that was virgin. They were establishing the concept of album art being more than just a picture of the four singers in the pop band, right? So you mentioned that these bands got big. So this was the period of what's called the second British invasion when bands Led Zeppelin was like the biggest band in the world and touring the US with their own airplane and all these big bands. And this coincided with this. This was really the peak of classic rock, which is why we still call it classic rock, that stuff from the late 60s to the mid 70s. And as you say, the record companies saw this as a marketing tool because in a way, it's, a, it's an emblem corresponding to a band, corresponding to an album that repeated viewings will remind you of. So there was a bit of footage one time of one of them, I think Aubrey Powell said that he'd gone to Los Angeles and he sees this big billboard of the cow photo. And it was kind of cut into a, a, a wider format than the Square album cover. It said nothing on it. But that's like kind of, it was just there reminding people, this image is there. I know what the image is, so I'm cool. I don't know what the image is. I'm kind of curious why someone would put it on a billboard. I th-
0: that, Well, that's true. And they did create these iconic pictures, but, I mean, unusual pictures that became iconic. The Cow, uh, Band on the Run is another album cover they did, which the cover itself is, is iconic, whether you know who's in it or not. And they did a lot of those things. Uh, Dark Side of the Moon, it's simple and it's iconic but nobody did this stuff before nobody you know like you said it was mostly just show pictures of the band because that's what people are going to see but i think what happened was having interesting album art kind of also freed up the marketing because then they didn't have to use pictures of these awful looking people um you know playing this awful music for the most part (laughs) pretty bad
1: and then they didn't have to pay someone to create visuals for ads They were using the existing iconography.
0: Right. And so by doing that, that helped the marketing. So it it was good all around. You know what I thought was interesting? What I thought was interesting was that we were talking about, you know, they came up with a lot of crazy ideas and Storm had a box of rejected ideas. (laughs) And if some artists didn't like any of those pictures, they went into the box. But then the box would be shown to other bands so that they might pick something that another band had rejected. And Paul McCartney was actually confronted with this. I don't know what album it is, but there's a picture, there's an album. It was
1: the one where he was walking a lobster on a leash. And
0: they developed that for somebody else who didn't care for it. And McCartney liked it. And they told Paul that in the documentary. And he was a little, hmm, better look into that one. So it's not like... They were um, always being creative geniuses and working, like, really tight with the artist. They just came up with a bunch of funny ideas, funny photography. Now, the other thing that actually is remarkable that they didn't really talk about too much is that this is pre-digital. They made some really, really great photographic art. You know, they talked about the Wish You Were Here cover and some of the other more extravagant things that they had to make with, with, with photo collages and things like that. That is very interesting. I wish they had gone more into that in in the documentary.
1: But that's just how creative people created things back then with the technology they had.
0: But it's a documentary about back then. Please tell us how you used to do it back then. Because I think a lot of people, uh, you know, you say, well, that's... That man on fire, that's pretty easy to do nowadays. Yes. uh, And of course it is.
1: But they had a stuntman, and what did they say? They did 13 takes, and on the last take, the wind whipped around and scorched his face. But then the stuntman said that he'd done hundreds of movies, and no one knew him for anything other than that album cover. His reputation had been made on that album cover. And that's, you know. Well,
0: yeah, but that's interesting. How often do you see a man on fire in in the record store?
1: Record stores I went to, there were often.
0: Actually, you know what? You wouldn't have seen that. Because it was wrapped
1: in shrink wrap. It was black shrink wrap.
0: Right. And you had the other Wish You Were Here icon, and that's the hand and the two hands, the robotic hand and the normal hand.
1: Which was a sticker on the shrink wrap. And so what a lot of people would do is they would slice open the album on the side to take the record out, but not take the shrink wrap off, because they considered that was part of the package. So one of the people was saying that he hadn't seen the cover in 30 years, and when he finally looked at the cover, he was surprised. I've been leafing through the book here. I'm trying to find one example, because they... Ah, here we go. It's a Ben Harper album, a Roy Harper album, called Life Mask. And think of this, Roy Harper did a thing with a face mask, you know, like a death mask, plaster mask, and so you see that in the middle, and the rest is just white to the edges. And in the book, they say, we photographed it against a white background and airbrushed it so you couldn't see the joints. It was uneventful and not particularly interesting for hypnosis to achieve. And... That's something I was thinking about watching this documentary. Good artwork doesn't have to be flashy. Good artwork can be minimalist. And this Roy Harper album is very attractive. It's very minimal. I mean, the Pink Floyd, Dark Side of the Moon, is very minimalist in a way. So they wanted to do things that used their skills, whereas there could have been many times that they could have done simpler things. There were some that were just text on a background, because that's what the band wanted. But... I think a real designer is going to explore a palette of things. Now, obviously, they developed their look complicated, quirky, strange. It was part of their image, but there's, I I really like minimalist photography and there's a lot you can do with that. You you know, you think of some of the ECM album covers, the jazz label. They don't necessarily all stand out individually, but they have a certain look.
0: Yeah, I always think of a blue landscape. Whenever I think of an E.C.M. album, it's always a blue-tinted dusk of something, you know, a cottage, beach cottage, or a woods, or something. But yeah, you're right. They have an icon. That that whole label has an iconic look. Whereas Hypnosis was all over the road. I mean, so many different kinds of covers, and they only had the two of them. It was just the two of them early on. They hired a few other photographers and graphics people. Uh, later on. But early on, it was just the two of them. Uh, One of them had the ideas and the other ones just went out and shot it. That's very interesting that they were all over the road as far as this stuff goes.
1: I think the first person they hired was Peter Christofferson, which later went on to be one of the founding members of Throbbing Gristle, Psychic TV, etc., and died... Some time ago he was very strange. They talk about how weird he was. He worked in a mortuary. He made these photos where he would use work at night and take the cadavers and move them around. that's just creepy. but Powell said that this brought a darkness into hypnosis that they didn't have, which you kind of need that that's the grain of sand in in the in the oyster right that Incites things in different ways. So they started out in Cambridge, and when they were like – Powell said when he was like 16, he went into this house where there was a bunch of cool-looking people and he hung out, and it was like Sid Barrett and a couple of other Pink Floyd people. So they did Pink Floyd covers from early on, and that's probably the one thing that set them up as a design company. I don't remember all the details, but they had been making covers for a while, and then someone suggested, why don't you do this – You know, why don't you make a company and do this a lot? And they did. But initially, it was like a bunch of college kids who are art students publishing a little magazine or something like that, which I did back in the day. And they just had the chops getting in with Pink Floyd. If they hadn't done Pink Floyd first, probably never would have worked. But once Pink Floyd got popular, then you know, their work was seen by millions of people.
0: Well, it doesn't surprise me that Paul McCartney jumped on it, because a lot of people don't realize that Paul McCartney was really big in the London art scene. Really, really big. You just don't hear about it. Uh, and so it doesn't surprise me that he jumped on it right away for... he, They did several of his record covers. They did. But the thing about yeah. Band on the Run that I think is interesting, and this is kind of a sidebar, this wasn't even brought out, but it was Paul's idea to have a bunch of people trying to escape Band on the Run. I guess the song had already been done. But then I, I was reminded of Sgt. Pepper, which also has a bunch of famous people on it. Yep. And, and in a way, Sgt. Pepper is also the Beatles trying to escape because Paul suggested to the fellows in the band, let's pretend we're somebody else. Let's pretend we're Sergeant Pepper and the Lonely Hearts Club Band. And what kind of music would those guys do? And it seemed to me that Paul was kind of like recycling this idea of famous people trying to escape. Uh, and l- literally on on the cover of "Band on the Run." But anyway, they did a nice job with that. That actually is, a, I when I was when I first saw that album cover, I didn't think it was so great. But the more I saw it over the years, the more I, th- I thought it was it was very engaging and, and a lot of fun to look at and try to figure out who the people were.
1: There's actually some footage of the shoot as Storm is getting the people aligned, showing them the expressions and everything. It looks like it didn't take long. It looks like it just took a couple of hours to get a few shots. And it's the band who's escaping and the spotlight from the prison has caught them. And so they're all doing, I don't know if you saw on social media, there's this thing about a raccoon on a terrace that circulates every now and then. <laughs> yeah. And when they see the person, it's like puts his hands up like he's surrendering. And so it kind of looks like that. Looking through this book, You know, I mentioned that not a lot of their stuff had text, but here's one really iconic one: the first Bad Company album. Yeah, just B A D C O up on an angle. That stands out in many ways because it's not distracting from the name, but it's also establishing a look for the name. And this was a self-titled album, Bad Company's Bad Company, with the song Bad Company. And now we're going to listen to Bad Company by Bad Company from their new album, Bad Company. Right?
0: It worked. Repetition sells, repetition sells, repetition (laughs) sells.
1: It's worth pointing out that not all of their covers were that good. And what's interesting about this book is there's a lot of bad covers in here. Out of the 400, they didn't...
0: Oh, I'd say half of them. I'd say half are like, But they're still interesting. They're very interesting to look
1: at. Yeah, but the ones that... It seems to me that the ones that are bad are the ones that look like they were made in the 1970s. And the ones that are good seem to have more staying power... So they had an interview with the person who drew the, the, the cover for 10cc, the original soundtrack. It was a pencil drawing of like an editing machine and all sorts of cinema stuff. And that looks like it could be made today. It looks like, you know, it's not dated in the same way as, I don't know, Clifford T. Ward, whoever he was, looking a bit like Keith Emerson with the long hair, looking out over some fields in a, in a drawing that looks like it was made by a 12-year-old. I mean, some of them are just... They just don't work.
0: There was that reject box, you know, and it sounded like it was getting pretty full (laughs) as the years went along.
1: But ad companies do that all the time, too.
0: Of course. Of course. That's what the purists are holding against them. It's like, oh, you're not these fabulous artists. You're You're just trying to market your pictures. Yep. You take, you make an interesting picture. You put it in the box, and then you show it to us later. So, they didn't always cater to the uh, to the actual uh, desires of 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 the musicians. They just said, "Here, maybe this would be okay, right?" Because I mean, the thing I thought was really interesting was the stuff with Peter Gabriel, because that was later, and yeah, they actually that was around nineteen eighty. Yeah, and they were more in, and Peter was very involved with. How he wanted to look, he said, "I want to be on the cover, but I don't want to be on the cover." So that's why a lot of his album covers are, are well, except for "So," they must not have done "So."
1: No, that's much. They stopped in 1982, so right. It was those three Peter Gabriel albums that were all called Peter Gabriel.
0: Right, and they all have an interesting look to them. They all have a, and they all have that hypnosis
1: look. Well, but they all have the Peter Gabriel look, in particular. So if you think about it, the first one is him in the car right? With the rain on the car. And they explained how they did that. They colored in the raindrops to make them sparkle. The second one is him clawing with the, the, like tearing the cover. And the third one, now I don't think hypnosis was involved in the third one. It's the one with the SX-70 Polaroid that when you take a picture with an SX-70, while it was developing, you could smear it. And so you smear down and so his face looks like it's melting or something like that. I don't think that was hypnosis.
0: Isn't that cover even called Smear? Isn't that, don't they all, all these three albums have nicknames like that? I
1: don't know. They're just all called Peter Gabriel, which isn't very good for marketing.
0: Right. But I think the fans have since then called them like, the first one in the car is called Streak, and the and the, the the one with the rips is called Rips or something. I forget. You know, someone's going to email us and tell us.
1: Yeah. Some of the stories were interesting. So Houses of the Holy Led Zeppelin, where you've got the kids climbing up on Giant's Causeway in Northern Ireland, explaining how they tried to do that, taking all these pictures. And then they realized that they could just take multiple pictures, cut them out to a montage because of the fact that these rocks were all octagonal. And this was with the band. This is not from the reject box. This is, here's the record. We want something, thinking of climbing up, attaining heaven, that sort of thing. So this is the kind of thing that was much more of a it it was a project with the band rather than them rather than the band sending them a record and saying make us a cover. Several of
0: the Led Zeppelin albums were like that. Um, also, Presence, yeah, was one that they were involved in. Where there's that object,
1: right? The black object inspired by the monolith in two thousand one of Space Odyssey.
0: And I thought that was I thought the cover was really funny because that is also a montage f- photograph of of a family having dinner, and the background is the London Boat Show, and I thought. <laughs> That's just nuts. But, you know, they put the they wanted to create these, these, these uncanny situations where there was a, uh, there was this object, this this small table-sized obelisk. As they explained, it's like, this was essential. You needed this object to be, to exist. This was- To
1: fulfill your life. Yeah,
0: to fulfill your life. And so that was Led Zeppelin. You wonder why they're so full of themselves. It's for reasons like that, that they think they're indispensable.
1: Here's what I'm going through the book, and I think this is a terrible cover. I hated it at the time. Yes, Tormato or Tormado, where it's yeah. a picture of someone, kind of a bluish picture of someone standing in a landscape. You don't see his head, but his hands have drumsticks, and they crush a the tomato on top of it. That's total, you know, Marcel Duchamp type Dada stuff. But it, it doesn't, I don't know. It's just dumb.
0: It's it's also a montage, isn't it? It's not a photograph of a man actually standing in front of a Fr- – is it a building or a skyscraper? No, it's, an, it's it a is?
1: landscape with like – you can see some sea in the background. So it's like by a cliff or something, there's clouds. That could be a montage. But the bit of crushing a tomato, then taking a picture of that on top of the picture just seems a little bit – So what was interesting is when they got to the point of Peter Saville, the designer for Factory Records, made a number of comments and said, you know, they got to the point where all these bands, they were all rich, and they weren't talking to 15-year-olds anymore. And that's when punk came in and New Wave came in. And it's true, but how different are we now with The musicians that people listen to a lot, like Taylor Swift and Adele, are not talking to 15-year-olds either. They're all rich. They're living wealthy lifestyles, even more isolated than in the 70s because of fandom, because of Instagram and paparazzi and all that. So have we reached another stage? Not that... I I mean, I wouldn't even recognize too many album covers today. The one I do remember is the Taylor Swift one where it shot the back of her head, because I think that's clever. But... I don't. If I weave through Apple Music and I look at the new things, I don't recognize any of these. There's nothing that stands out. I think people attempt
0: to do something iconic, but I think there's also some restrictions by the marketing company. It's like, look, this thing is only going to be this big. We're going to use it in marketing for a few months only, and that's it. So it doesn't have to necessarily be as iconic as things used to have to be. Remember, when we used to shop there was only two ways to find out about new music. One was either to hear it on the radio or to go and look for it yeah. in record stores. And, and the music press. Got... And the music press. Okay, and the music right. press. But still, you didn't have your hands-on, your actual own experience. You'd either heard it or you touched it in the record store. And you know, when you have 12 inch squares to deal with, might as well put some really cool pictures on it. But we, that's not how we, we shop for music anymore. We don't... There's no need for a, 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 a an album cover to be intriguing because it's, re- it's more important to show the artist because that's how it's going to be used and seen. People are going to see it in their own collections. They're going to see it on streaming. They're not going to see it as something to entice them to purchase for $15.
1: Yeah, yeah. I- I'm just looking at the Apple Music Jazz Essential Albums list. And it's true that jazz, even going back to the 50s, had a unique style. The Blue Note covers have the Blue Note look. You know, Miles Davis, Kind of Blue. John Coltrane's The Love Supreme. These are iconic album covers. But as I look through the rest of them, there's not many that stand out. You, You know, there's some, okay, I had this album, so I remember what John Coltrane, My Favorite Things, looks like. It's a bad photo cut on a blue background with the text. It really says nothing at all. While some of these labels had a look, Blue Note in particular, most of it is just, you know, it's just the kind of thing that we ignore. And even if even if back then we were looking at record covers for jazz, and I guess it wasn't until that time in the 70s that anyone realized that record covers needed to be creative. Bitches Brew, 1969, that was pretty wild cover, but a lot of other things are like... So this is this is a turning point in the music industry. Well,
0: I I think a lot of album art is is a vanity project for for the band. It's like it's another opportunity for them to exert their personality beyond just the music. They can use some graphics too. And I think that may still exist, but it's not as important as it was then because when we saw an album, we said this is the band. The band said this cover is what they want and there must be some meaning to it, but I don't, there isn't that much of that anymore.
1: Looking back at classic rock, now there are some great covers that aren't Hypnosis. Abbey Road from the Beatles, Jethro Tull, Aqualung, Dylan's early album covers, Patti Smith's record Horses, which was a photo by her partner slash lover Robert Maplethorpe. So you did have covers in that period that stood out, but I kind of think that it's like, so look at the Yes album, right? The Yes album from 1972 with the thing kind of looking like a 35 millimeter film slide, and they're just in this room in green light. And then look at the next albums with the covers by Roger Dean, how that changed everything from this boring album cover on the Yes album to all of a sudden these spacey images which gave the image of the band. Once Yes found Roger Dean, that's when they started having success because the image of the band was as much visual as it was the music.
0: Yeah. Although I really like that first Yes album cover. I think it's quirky and I think, you know, for the time for the time that it came out, it was what the heck is that styrofoam head doing suspended there? I mean, that's... that's- yeah,
1: but that's, you know, that's the, that's the art student right. thing that whoever, you know. But it wasn't... It, it was still a photo of the band, right? right? And so a lot of things in the hypnosis covers are not photos of the band. They may have been photos inside a gate folder on a back cover, but solo artists were often on the cover, but bands weren't. And that was another interesting thing, because we had gone from the period when it was mostly photos of the musicians to a period when it was, again, this, this paratextual information that may or may not have something to do with the music, because that cow, nothing in that record sounds like a cow.
0: Right, exactly. Like I was saying a moment ago, the, the, the idea of, a, of an image actually being the band was, was really important. So when you saw the cow on Adam Hart Mother, you were like, what? First of all, what does Adam Hart mother mean? And why is there a cow on the cover? And I think that, you know, Pink Floyd is just, you know, giggling about it because this doesn't mean anything, even, you know? And uh, so it's a good joke, but you can only do that joke once or twice. And then after a while, you can't.
1: Yeah. Okay. Next tracks. Please. So I'm going to link in the show notes to an episode we did years ago with Dave Harrington, guitarist of Dark Side. Dark Side was originally a two-man group with Nicholas Jar on keyboards and vocals. It was a kind of a marriage of EDM and improv rock. And my son turned me on to this, and he became like the super fan. He created a Tumblr with videos and stuff like that. He would see them anytime he could. And then after that first album, they stopped. They each went their own separate ways, made a whole bunch of records. Then they got back together for an album called Spiral. I think last year, they've been touring recently with the addition of a drummer, and Darkside has changed incredibly. They've still got that EDM roots. Nicholas Jar on synthesizers and keyboards. But Dave Harrington's guitar has taken over a lot more, and the drums are a welcome addition. They're a jam band now. Dave Harrington has another jam band called Taper's Choice that's been performing for a while. But the new Dark Side stuff is simply, I want to say, revelatory. Now, the coolest thing is that the band has started releasing live recordings of their concerts for free. If you go to the band's website, and I'll put a link in the show notes, there's a link for a Telegram channel where every few days for the past couple of weeks, they've been releasing one concert from the 2023 tour. When my son saw this, he was just ecstatic. He said, I got all of these. You got to listen to them. And it's truly amazing. It's like this is like if The Grateful Dead was playing now, the kind of music, the kind of spacey music, jazzy music. It's really impressive. My son saw three shows on the tour. He does not like to travel, but he traveled to – he saw them in Paris where he lives, and he went to two other cities in France to see them. Every few days, there's another one coming out. There are about 20 or 25 dates, and I think they're going to release them all. And it's its the jam band ethos. Spread the music. People will hear it. They'll come to our shows. So if you want to hear this, go to the website, go to Telegram, download one of these files. They're MP3 files, but they sound great. They're all soundboard recordings. And check out this new dark side. Doug, what have you got?
0: You know, one of the problems that we continue to have is how do we find new music? And I find music all kinds of different ways. And we talk about it a lot when we discuss our next tracks. You know, here's how I discovered this piece. Well, one of the things that I do is I follow a guy on Twitter ...that posts photographs of this old British magazine called Sounds. And most of the issues seem to be like the late 70s, early 80s. covers punk and a lot of rock. And it's a very interesting time because the magazine covers straight-ahead rock and also punk stuff. But anyway, I like to read it. And he photographs it well enough so that you can actually zoom in and, and read the actual article. Some of the pages also contain advertisements for bands, either for their shows or for their albums, and one of them I saw had a band that i never heard of called Mud. And I'm thinking, oh, with a name like Mud, I'll bet they're really rocking. I'll bet they're really punky in it, cause I'd never heard of Mud before. So I did a little research, I looked up Mud, and apparently they're a glam band. <laughs> Uh, okay, well, then that's fine. I like glam rock. I mean, Bowie was glam for a while. Roxy Music was glam. Uh, Sparks or Roy Wood's Wizards. I mean, this is all flamboyant pop music, right? So it's it's worth listening to. And the thing about glam rock is a lot of it was about fashion, not just the pop music, but the fashion, how they dressed and what they wore. And Mud, at least on this album, uh, is dressed in lilac zoot suits. <laughs> and on the cover of this album... They're all holding like these very large, like two and a half feet, three foot long spark plugs. And the name of the album is Use Your Imagination. And I'm going, use my imagination. Let's see, mud, spark plug, sparking plug, lilac, zoot, suit. use your imagination, mud. I can't, I can't, if there's a joke, I don't know what it is. I can't, either going over my head or I, I I don't know what. So if anybody knows what the joke on the album cover is, if there even is one, let me know. But anyway, I dropped the needle on a couple of tracks. They sound interesting. It's like I said, it's a it's kind of music that I'm not super familiar with, but I certainly get a kick out of some of it. So I'll give this a listen. Mud, use your imagination, why don't you? It's my next track. This was episode number 264 of The Next Track. Thank you for listening. You can start or join a conversation in the comments section of this episode's show page at our website. You'll also find links to some of the things we talked about in the show notes for this episode. Just visit thenexttrack.com. Don't forget to support The Next Track by making regular donations via Patreon. We're ad-free and self-sustaining, so listener support is what keeps this thing going. Visit patreon.com slash the next track. Thank you very much. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks again. We'll talk to you next time.